Today's teaching text comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, who love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' sin, your Father will not forgive your sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. I'd like to begin today with three true stories. I was sitting next to Kirsten, and my wife, in a church meeting on a Wednesday night uh, several months back, and she got a repeated call from her father. So she stepped outside, took the call. The doctor just left the room. He's not going to make it. Those were the very first words that he said, and he couldn't say much after that because he got choked up. You see, the backstory here is that Kirsten's brother, Van, had gone to a walk-in clinic with some burning in his chest uh, just about 48 hours before this. And so he, thinking he was experiencing heartburn for the first time, discovered that he had a torn aorta, that the, the largest valve in his heart was gushing blood internally. So he was rushed to a hospital, and a couple surgery attempts later, the doctor had just come in the room and said, it's time to start saying goodbye because he's not going to make it. So we left that church thing right away. We got the next flight out, which was the following morning, first thing. And by the time we got to the hospital in Nashville, we had gotten more information that Van had been scheduled for a surgery, but that surgery actually had a better chance of killing him than it did healing him, but he was dying as it is. And so this was quite literally the only option left. So I prayed. I remember sitting in that hospital room with my head buried in my hands in that ultimate act of desperation and mystery and hope that we call prayer. Three days later, Van woke up in the same hospital room after a successful surgery. One of the surgeons came into the recovery room to talk to us, the family, and he talked to us about the moment that he declared Van deceased, and then a nursing student whose only role was to hand him the scissors began praying in the operating room, and when that happened, he instantly found the tear that he had been looking for unsuccessfully for five hours, was able to stitch it up and Van survived. Miraculous. That's not my word. That is what the non-praying, non-believing surgeon called it as he fought tears recounting the story to us. That's not bad, man. What else have you got? Second story. Um, there's a woman named Monica. She's a single mom, has one son. 
She is a devout believer who sang hymns and prayed over her baby each night. He grew up to see the world quite differently than she did. He became known for public drunkenness in their city and as a womanizer. He eventually became a professor using all the intellect he had to philosophically combat the convictions of his mother. Monica didn't give up, though. She just kept on praying for her son's salvation. When he was 19, she had this dream that she believed was from God, promising that God was hearing her prayers and would respond. So she got more intense and more hopeful in her prayers. And then a year passed. And then another year. And then another year. Nine years after that dream, her son was sitting alone in a garden on an ordinary afternoon. He heard what he thought was the voice of God, opened up the scriptures, encountered Jesus on the pages that he detested, and surrendered his life and entered into relationship with God. His name is St. Augustine, arguably the most or the greatest theologian in history, one of the earliest fathers of the Christian church. I'll give you one more. Myongsong Presbyterian Church in Seoul, Korea started an early morning prayer meeting 20 years ago with a group of 40 people. Today, if you visit that church, there are 12,000 people that gather to pray in one of the world's global cities every day of the week. That prayer meeting has had to be split into three at 4 a.m., at 5 a.m., or at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. is the I overslept and had a bit of a slow start this morning prayer time. They have to close and lock the doors on the hour, every hour, because it's standing room only in their massive facility because that many people are coming to pray. If you arrive at 4.01 a.m., you are waiting for 59 minutes on dark, cold winter mornings just to get in to pray. Prayer is a compelling wonder. I mean, God acting on earth in response to conversation with a human being, how could that be? How could there be a God who is equal parts this powerful and this personal? It's better than we dare to imagine most of the time. In the words of Walter Wink, the message is clear. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Prayer is a compelling wonder. And prayer is a confounding mystery. Because half of you will be motivated by those three stories while the other half will be confused or maybe even angered by them. Like, hey man, that's great that your brother got healed and everything, but why some and not others? I mean, what about all the other people that have a similar story of praying with their head buried in a hospital room just like you do and their prayers weren't heard and they don't have a story of healing to tell at a church service? If we insist on celebrating divine healing, then someone please talk to me about divine silence. Or, or I'm truly happy for Augustine and his mom, but what took God so long? I mean, why wait nine years to answer a prayer, then answer it? Is there some kind of right combination of time spent praying plus number of people praying plus method of prayer that finally gets God's attention? Or is he just unmotivated and apathetic most of the time and she finally caught him at the right moment? And in what other context does withholding divine power for a nine-year period make sense? Or, or look, I guess that's inspiring that the Koreans are up before the sun praying, but what's come of it? Like, are there any real metrics you can show me that there's anything more happening there than just the benefits of early morning meditation and good old-fashioned camaraderie? I think the question we're all circling around all the time when it comes to prayer is this, do my prayers actually matter? Is anything going to happen that wouldn't have happened except that I prayed? Or is anything going to not happen that was bound to happen except for the fact that I prayed? Do my prayers matter? 
the novelist Kurt Vonnegut offers his opinion. I don't think it at all likely that God requires the ill-informed and contradictory advice of us humans as to how to run the world. If he is all wise as you say he is, doesn't he already know what is best? And if he is all good, won't he do it whether we pray or not? So look, for as many of us as would say yes with Walter Wink, at least that many of us would just shrug our shoulders with Kurt Vonnegut. And so here's the space where our prayers actually live paralyzed between wonder and mystery. History belongs to the intercessors. Yes, that is our God. And then we actually pray. And all that inspiration that welled up in us when we heard a quote like this one is suddenly drowned out by questions and confusion and doubt and disappointment. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we do keep praying in this paralyzing space that we find ourselves. Every statistic you look at will show you that across most secular cities in the enlightened West, people are giving up on church, but the same people flooding out the doors of the church keep on praying. According to Gallup research, this week, more Americans will pray than will exercise, drive a car, have sex, or go to work. Nine out of 10 Americans pray regularly. Three out of four pray every day. We keep on praying, but we don't pray in response to Jesus. We pray the safest kinds of prayers, those ones that are passive and vague enough that we'd never really be able to tell if God responds or not. So just as a thought experiment, think of everything you've prayed for in the last week. If God answered every one of your requests, what would happen? You see, save one or two particularly bold or naive people, the answer is almost always very little. Because the space between wonder and mystery paralyzes us. Jesus' disciples once asked him this question, teach us to pray. And this was his response. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. Oh, beautiful. I love that. One God and Father over every people on the face of the earth. Beautiful. Hallowed be your name. Oh, bit resistant on that one. Because it does make God seem like a bit of a narcissist, but I guess if God is this powerful and this person, he's earned a touch of hallowing so we can get there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where he loses us. Prayer as a way to meditate and let go? Definitely. Prayer as a way, uh, a centering exercise? Sure. Prayer as a channel to be reformed from the inside out? Absolutely. Prayer that really works. Like the sort of prayer that joins God in bringing about redemption and pushing back the darkness. The sort of prayer that actually makes a marked difference in the visible, tangible world, in the lives of the real people that I interact with and the real circumstances they're facing. The sort of prayer that brings heaven to earth in the language of Jesus. That's where our opinions splinter in all sorts of different directions. This is where he loses us. And he did everything he could to make sure he didn't lose us there. I mean, Jesus kept repeating this sort of thing. Let me just give you a few quotes from Jesus on the subject of prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You get it, but he keeps going, so will I. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give good gifts to those who ask him There's more just like that, but we could go all day. You see, the point is that if we really took the invitation seriously, if we really believed in prayer as Jesus taught it, we'd have the same problem as that Korean church. We'd be locking the doors on the hour because it's standing room only, but we don't have that problem because we don't buy it. Not entirely anyway. You see, it's true that prayer is both a wonder and a mystery, but I think most profoundly, prayer is a profound invitation. Prayer is, I believe, the most profound invitation God offers us on this side of grace. And it's not for the pious or for the lucky. It's for all of us. This on earth as it is in heaven kind of prayer is technically called intercessory prayer. And biblically, the word to intercede means to go between, to pass between two parties, or to mediate. So in layman's terms, intercessory prayer means to pray for someone else. I'm not talking about making wishes to a cosmic genie. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that starts with love for someone else and then ushers in God's activity where it's lacking. My favorite definition comes from Richard Foster, who says, if we truly love people, We will desire for them far more than is within our power to give them. This will lead us to prayer. Intercession is a way of loving others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, even self-giving prayer. In the ongoing work of the kingdom of God, nothing is more important than intercessory prayer. So if we see the invitation, we begin to regain movement from the paralyzed spot where we've gotten stuck, and we... But if we see that, we actually have to start all the way back at the beginning. So I want to show you God's original plan when it comes to prayer. And I'm going to give you the whole story of Scripture in four brief scenes. Creation, fall, promise, Jesus. So let's begin at creation, the life God intended. All the way back in Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the world, God created Adam. But Adam, in Hebrew, literally means person or human. In fact, in the Hebrew Old Testament, many times when our English translations read man and woman, the Hebrew just says Adam, spelled exactly like it is in English. So the Genesis claim is this, that this isn't just the story of God and some guy named Adam. This is the story of God and all of us. I'm telling every individual story. And biblically speaking, do you know why you were created? This is Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over, and then it goes on to list everything created on the first five days. So why were you created? Biblically speaking, to rule. 
And this isn't a manipulative, power-hungry sort of rule. This is an imago day, an image of God kind of authority. Human beings were set apart, bearing God's image and authority to rule over creation by selfless love. They were made intercessors, participating with God in lovingly overseeing the world. So God made Adam and Eve his managers here on earth, his intercessors trusted to call the shots. Now hear me very clearly on this. God did not give the earth over to people, but God did actually share the responsibility of managing the earth with people. This is why it says in Psalm 115, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. So God created you and I in his image, and he gave us a creation to manage. This place was our assignment to spread his image over every square inch. Scene two, fall, the life we actually live. Now, if you're paying attention, the question you should be asking at this point is, well, where did it all go wrong? Because if God's plan is for us to rule his creation by authority, we're honestly doing a subpar job. I mean, the environment's falling apart to the degree that scientists are putting an end date on when this planet can support human life. Natural resources are being pillaged from the nations that need them most and overconsumed by the places uh, that need them the least. Half the world's dying of malnutrition while the other half dies of overconsumption. Where did God's intentions for creation go so horribly wrong? Well, the scriptures claim that all of this dysfunction is a result of a deception, that you and I lost who we are. We forfeited our role as intercessors managing his creation. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They believe that deception. They act on that deception, and then pain and suffering enters in the world. And with that, the line of communication between God and people was severed. The authority to rule God's creation given to you and I in Genesis 1 was usurped by Satan in Genesis 3. So the conflict introducing chaos into the story is this. You have a spiritual enemy. The weapon of that enemy is deception. And the effect of that deception is paralyzation. The intercession ro- intercessor role that God created you and I for was lost to a spiritual enemy through deception, leaving us paralyzed. A picture might help sort this out. Uh, A few years ago, one of my friends got into a motorbike accident that left him with a brain injury. And so he lived for months at a rehab facility trying to retrain the part of his brain connected to his motor skills. So, So signals would fire off in his brain like, move your right hand, and then his right hand would just stay completely still because somewhere between his head and his hand, there was a communication breach. Now, he still had within him all of the intellectual capacity of a young professional in New York City, but he also had to be fed ice chips by a nurse by hand because there was a break in the communication between his mind and his body. And I'll never forget the first visit I made to go and see him. When he was looking at me with this kind of terror behind his eyes, my friend Ricky was trapped inside a body that didn't work. He could see and think and want, but his action was paralyzed. All the power was still there, but the line of communication between intention and action had been cut off. And so I sat there looking at him with tears welled up behind my eyes, wanting so badly to free him, but this was a lock that I couldn't pick because the imprisonment was inside of him. And what I felt looking at my friend Ricky is what God feels looking at us. We are trapped due to a communication breach. God created us to be the inseparable connection between his mind and his action on the earth. We are his body. 
But the line of communication then was broken in the fall. So we look around the world and we see all the dysfunction surrounding us, but we lack the capacity to set the world right because somewhere between God's mind and our action, the signals have been cut off. There is an imprisonment inside of us. We carry around the power and image of a perfect loving God who has given us his very being. It's all still there, but we are paralyzed due to a communication breach. This brings us to scene three, promise, a guaranteed victory. Genesis 3 verse 15. We are still in Genesis? How long is this? Just relax. I'm going to move very quickly from here. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to Satan says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. Now this is important because head is the biblical imagery for intercessor or manager. God's very first promise spoken immediately after authority was lost is this, through human offspring, I will bring one who will recover the intended role that I gave you that's been lost. God's very first promise is, I'll make you intercessors again. Scene four, Jesus, the living victory. Here's how it plays out. The prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus's birth this way in Isaiah nine. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. God's coming to earth. The author's writing himself into the story. To us, a child is born. That's a showstopper on Christmas Eve by candlelight. But it's a lot more than that because it goes on to say the government will be on his shoulders. That's authority language. It's Genesis language. He's coming to win back the role you lost to repair the communication breach. That's the first promise. And in John 12, Jesus says this, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So why were you created? To rule. And what does Jesus call Satan? Ruler. That's Genesis language. And what does Jesus promise? To win your rule back. That's the Genesis promise. And at the close of the Gospels, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he sums the whole victory up like this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God won your authority back. He restored the very position for which you were created. He stepped into the tension you feel all the time and then cut away through it. He made you an intercessor again. That's more or less the story of the whole scriptures. And if you are still with me, and I'm painfully aware that I might have lost a few of you in that biblical history lesson, but if you are still with me, you should be asking, oh, that's great, man. What does any of that have to do with prayer? I'm so glad you asked because Jesus makes that super clear in probably the most confusing thing he ever said. So go with me to John chapter 16. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's better for you if I go. I mean, this is the opening line of every breakup speech, but it couldn't be further from that because Jesus is talking about prayer. He goes on, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. See, what he's telling his disciples is you've gotten used to coming and bringing requests and needs and questions and complaints to me in person. But in a few days, you'll be going directly to the father. He's talking about prayer. 
Prayer is the path Jesus cut for us to get back to God's original plan. It's the way that we can rule, manage, and intercede in this world like he created to at first. It is the repair of the communication breach that paralyzes us. Philip Yancey writes, of all the means God could have used, prayer seems the weakest, slipperiest, easiest to ignore. So it is. Unless Jesus was right in that most baffling claim. He went away for our sakes as a form of power sharing to invite us into direct communion with God and give us a crucial role in the struggle against the forces of evil. God has shared his power with you. He calls you a co-manager of heaven walking around on earth. And here's how that goes from a biblical idea to actual experience in your actual life. Prayer. Prayer is a repaired communication breach with the triune God. Jesus is telling his disciples, until now you've never really prayed, not like I designed it, but when I go to the Father, you will begin to pray in my name. In my name is more exactly translated under my authority. So to pray in Jesus' name means to pray with recovered authority, the authority we were created to carry, lost, and he's won back on our behalf. In Jesus' name was never just meant to be the ending tagline on the prayers of experienced Christians. It is the exercise exercise of Jesus' victory. It means that we have the very same access to God the Father Jesus has. This is Larry Hurtado. To pray in Jesus' name means that we enter into Jesus' status in God's favor and invoke Jesus' standing with God. Now, you're not Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, every single time you pray, you come before the Father in the robe and crown of a ruler in the eyes of heaven, you are filled with Jesus' standing and, a, and status. When God won your authority back, God was winning prayer back. Karl Barth says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of this world. So the way that we push back the curse that's infected the whole world and infected us is by prayer. And John Wimber says prayer is meeting the needs of others on the basis of God's resources. So prayer is heaven's highest security clearance. It's, it's where you go in and you gather up what you can carry and then come out distributing it into the world. It, you are a manager calling the shots for how heavenly resources get distributed on the earth. Prayer is saying, oh man, we've missed some over here. And God, we're going to need a lot of your activity in this area. It's distributing heavenly resources across New York City among your coworkers and your roommates and your neighbors and your friends over bars and cafes and soup kitchens to working professionals and stay-at-home moms and students and the unemployed in high-rises and housing projects and prisons and everything in between. Bringing heaven to earth restores our world and restores the rightful role that you were always created to play in this world. That is prayer. But, but, the worst-kept secret in church history is that most people, even most Christians, we don't really like prayer. I mean, we do it out of guilt or obligation or because we know it's good for us, so prayer is essentially the spiritual equivalent of eating celery. But what if, according to Jesus, you've never really prayed? Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. 
You've never come wearing the robes of the air, carrying the status and standing of Jesus. You've never come to plunder the riches of the heavenly vault. You've never pushed back the curse with me. It's already been defeated. I'm just looking for a few people to implement that victory. Wait, that's prayer? I could see myself waking up a bit earlier for that. I might use my lunch hour slightly differently for that. I could even skip a meal or two for that. But here's the part that really blows my mind is that God doesn't need intercessors managing his creation. I mean, he's not overwhelmed by all the responsibility of keeping this thing going. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and completely outside of time. He's got this. God chooses intercessors. That's how committed he is to sharing redemption with the likes of you and me, that except in the most extraordinary cases, God has limited himself and his mission on the earth to the management of imperfect, ordinary people like us. I wonder what God just can't wait to do. And he's just waiting on you, a manager in his household, to ask him. So think about the last week. If God gave you everything you wanted, what would happen? If you really are a manager calling the shots in his kingdom, how are you directing the resources of heaven? What are you doing with all of that authority? You see, we dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. So I'll land here. Whenever people ask me what I do for a living that have gotten to know me outside of the context of being a pastor, and then I tell them, the answer is either to exit the conversation as quickly as possible, or I mean their response is to exit the conversation, or it's something like, really? People still do that. Huh. And when the response is that sort of intrigue, I know that at, at a time when it's a little bit safer, sometime later, they're going to bring that back up. And, and usually they do, and they'll ask something like this, so why did you decide to become a pastor? But the tone they ask that in means that the question they're really asking is, like, did you grow up in some sort of super weird, hyper-religious environment? Or do you come from a long line of people that just can't let go of a dying religious ideal? What happened to you, man? And the honest answer to that question is prayer. Because when I was 13 years old, I, I honestly wasn't sure I was buying all this Jesus stuff. I mean, I was a curious kid, but I wasn't an easy sell. And so my whole response to the church was basically like, look, if this is real, I would like all of it and sooner than later. But if it's not, I'd prefer to find out quickly so I don't have to waste all my time singing these mediocre songs and going to all of these meetings. And then a mentor of mine in the midst of that phase of my life asked me a question that messed me up in the best possible way. He said, Tyler, what do you think God would do in your life if every day this summer uh, you spent time walking, uh, prayer walking at your middle school, praying for every student in your class? I don't know. And he said, why don't you find that out? And I liked that idea. 
So every day, all summer long, 13-year-old me walked a circle around that school with a class directory in my hand, praying by name for everyone in my upcoming eighth grade class. I'm going to show you a photo of that middle school building right now just so you know how unbelievably ordinary this, this all was. This dingy public middle school is the foundation of who I am. It is where God shaped me more profoundly than anywhere else because something began to change within me as I walked circles around it in prayer. In eighth grade, following that summer, I started a Christian outreach program in my public middle school at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Pick a convenient time. That's a great start. I mean, what middle schooler does not want to consider life's meaning and purpose before the sun rises. Exactly. So we, we met in a math classroom. This was my entire strategy. I'm not making this up. On Tuesday evenings, I would go into my bedroom. I would open the Bible to a random place. I would pick out a paragraph, and I would read that paragraph and jot down a few thoughts about what I thought that it meant. The following morning, I would read the paragraph publicly and share my thoughts about what I thought it meant. How strong a recipe for revival do you think that sounds like? But I prayed. I went to school early on Wednesday mornings to lead that group, and so I kept going to school early on Tuesday and Thursday mornings as well so that I could keep praying through that same class directory. True story, my mom had to ask me to chill out with all the early morning prayer because she was losing too much sleep taking me to school at absurd hours. A couple months in, so many students were coming that we had to move from that math classroom into our school's theater. At the close of that year, it was the largest extracurricular group in the school, and a third, approximately a third of my eighth grade class had come into relationship with Jesus at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays at their school through the potentially heretical sermons of a 13-year-old skeptic. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. I don't have any family that live in that town anymore. But my in-laws live about a half hour away from that school, and I was at their house for the holidays a couple years back, and I started thinking, you know, I've not laid eyes on that building in over 20 years now. So I drove back to that school. I got there right at 6.30 a.m. just for old time's sake. And I remember getting to the intersection and getting stopped at a red light where I could see the school, and I just broke down weeping with gratitude alone in my mother-in-law's car. I parked the only car in the parking lot. I got out of the car, and I stood in this little hidden place. I want to show you a couple more photos. This little hidden place in front of the school where I used to sit as a 13-year-old and pray by name for my friends. And I walked over to this little patch of sidewalk where I sat on Thursdays, and I remembered how a group of people, praying people, slowly grew around me over that year. And I walked the exact path that I had worn into the grass around that building, circling it in prayer. So look, to you, this is just an old public middle school in need of mild renovation. To me, this is holy ground. It's the place God started something in me that has never stopped. It's the place where I discovered what Jesus was talking about when he said, until now you've never prayed in my name. So I walked to that ground and I prayed with tears streaming down my face through a trembling voice that could barely get a word out and one visit just wasn't enough. A few days later, I was out to dinner with my wife on New Year's Eve and after dessert, I said, you know where'd be a really romantic place to ring in the new year? My old middle school. 
So we hustled back to the old middle school because I wanted to be sure to be there and to be circling it in prayer when the calendar turned. Yes, it is thrilling to be married to me. And I, I went back there not because I thought that if I do, uh, God would do what I want him to do or because I think there's any kind of mystical power in lining God up with our calendars. The reason I went back there is because it's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be with the Father. And that night as I walked around in prayer, I didn't become any more his son. God did not love me any more that night than he has any other night. God did not prefer my company to the company of anyone that was out dancing and toasting champagne. But in a world that for the most part rejects him, ignores him, and chooses any kind of distraction over him, just imagine how much it must bless the heart of the father when we, his children, say, I prefer your company. I choose your company over every other option. Prayer is about that. It's about being with the Father before it's about anything else. We cannot start with outcomes because prayer doesn't start with outcomes. It starts with presence. It is a disservice to talk about prayer and lead with outcomes. We just cannot brush past the presence of the Father and arrive at anything close to what Jesus talked about when he talked about prayer. See, prayer is first and foremost about a longing to be with God. It's about presence. So there I am, I'm, I'm walking at 11.59 p.m. on December 31st around this school, this familiar prayer circle that's come to define my life. And what God started in me as a 13-year-old kid has never stopped. I still prefer his presence and spend time with him in prayer every early morning before anything else. And it is not the gritting your teeth like, come on, God, I'm putting in the time, you owe me this kind of prayer. It's the joy of my life. But this particular night, as the clock's turning to a new year and I'm walking that circle in prayer, I could only get one word out through a quivering voice and tears welled up behind my eyes. And it was this, do it again, Lord. Do it again. What I saw you do here in this ordinary place, in ordinary people, do it again, Lord, this time in Brooklyn. What I witnessed you pour out here 20 years ago, pour it out again, a double portion this year in Brooklyn. You haven't changed, so I'll keep asking, do it again, Lord. We dream of a God who brings heaven to earth. God dreams of praying people to share heaven with. If we really took Jesus seriously on the invitation to intercessory prayer, what would happen in you? What would happen in, in your church? What would happen in your city? Why don't you find that out?